the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Updating uh, the situation in Kenosha that uh, Jacob Blake, who was shot by police, which uh, sparked a night of rioting and looting yesterday in Kenosha. Jacob Blake apparently has a history of assaulting police. The same Jacob Blake was a man taken into custody when he refused to leave a, uh, a bar after he pulled a gun. He also has past charges for domestic abuse and a sex crime. So maybe Governor Evers would have wanted to uh, hold his powder and said, but he didn't, before understanding exactly uh, what the police understood about Jacob Blake. Perhaps this, since this was a domestic call, this wasn't the first time that they had been called to Mr. Blake's home or the home of some relative. It wasn't their first interaction with Mr. Blake. So perhaps they knew something about Mr. Blake that doesn't readily come across in a 30-second video. And the point here is uh, not to exonerate the, the police officer who opened fire on him as he reached in his car. I don't know. This isn't a defense of the police. It's a defense of fact gathering. And it seems like Governor Evers and certainly those who use the occasion to destroy other people's property are not so interested. Uh, again, we come back to the same position as we're on day one of the RNC. This is what they want. You see it play out on your TV screen as Kenosha is covered. What do you want? Is that the kind of country you want to live in? Uh, President Trump was um, addressing and previewing what the convention will offer. Our country has unbelievable potential. We're going to have the strongest economy we've ever had next year. We're going to do additional tax cuts as opposed to massive tax increases, which is going to lead us into a depression, what they want to do. What they want to do will lead us into a depression. 401k stocks, everything's going to go right down the tubes. We're doing additional tax cuts. We are going to have one of the best economies next year. And within two years, we'll have the greatest economy we've ever had. Better even than prior to the China virus coming in. We have tremendous potential in this country. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Kurt Mills, senior reporter at the American Conservative, AmericanConservative.com. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. So, I mean, unsurprisingly, the president is uh, promoting an aspirational message, at least in part, because Mm -hmm. he understands that uh, you have to tell people where you're going to take them and how you're going to get there to some extent, although the Democrats didn't do much of that uh, last week. Um, and also suggested, unsurprisingly, that, uh, look, you still have to address some of the, the the false stories that were told about the president and the party. So it'll be a, a combination. And it begins tonight with some headliners, particularly uh, against the backdrop of the violence again this weekend around the country. Tim Scott, who is the author of legislation to reform the police, as well as uh, some candidates in urban centers 
that are making a bit of a splash, at least in GOP circles, like uh, Clem Classic in, uh, Clem, Kim Klasik in, in Baltimore. So um, the beginning of a Republican response on the topic of law and order plus racial justice. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it appears like all the issues that are uh, percolating right now, the, none of this is headed to any kind of conclusive resolution until November. And uh, I think we're going to see, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, Trump has obviously resumed White House press conferences and he's addressed the country multiple times since the crisis started, either the Corona crisis in March and the George Floyd crisis in June. Um, but this will be the most prime time audience that Trump gets to, you know, first address, uh, you know, a, a pretty uh, divisive and controversial presidency, say what you will about it. And then second, you know, the biggest six months that I've lived through. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's prime time. And so here's what the Dems are doing to try to run interference on day one. Uh, two dozen uh, former GOP members of Congress are throwing their support behind a Republicans for Biden effort being launched today. Uh, by the Biden campaign, led by former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, and including such uh, stalwart Republicans as uh, members of Congress, as uh, Obama's Transportation Secretary, our very own Ray LaHood from Illinois. I mean, this seems to me a perfect setup, not for Biden, but for Trump to say, uh, just remember, I'm the guy who said I'm going to D.C. to drain the swamp. And that includes some Republicans. And so I've upset some Republicans who are more interested in status and their checkbook than they are in uh, right sizing the federal government and changing its attitude so that it is uh, uh, concerned about the interests of people who play by the rules in this country. And so if that means that Jeff Flake and some of his friends don't like me and are going to go support Biden, then fare thee well. I couldn't care less because I didn't come here for them. I came here for you. It seems like it sets up perfectly for that. Yeah. I mean, we'll see what he does. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, my personal view is that Trump was uh, most effective as a politician uh, in the primaries of 2016 when he, you know, he sort of laid out a withering criticism of the Bush-style republicanism in the Bush years. Um, you know, I, I don't think, you know, from just a pure strategy standpoint, I'm not sure Republicans should, you know, exalt in the fact that a lot of these congressmen that represented, you know, you, you know, sort of suburban or, you know, you know, now pretty heavily Democratic districts, you know, just 10 years ago, I, I think those are the kind of districts in the future that the party will need to win back if it wants to have a national profile. Yeah. Um, but, so, but, so, I yeah, mean, but, but, it, but it's pretty, it, it's pretty rich that, you know, these, these, uh, these, um, apparatchiks of the Bush era are suddenly uh, wringing their hands about morality. Well, and also, too, I mean, these are the sorts of Republicans, and I know them well in Illinois, specifically mm -hmm. Ray LaHood, who now has been replaced by his son, who's actually a real conservative. Um, I didn't know that. And he's holding that seat in central Illinois. But here's the thing. Those are the kind of Republicans that lost the suburbs in the first place. The idea that Trump lost the suburbs. No, 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 no. In these swing states, which we were losing before Trump won them in 2016, like Pennsylvania, uh, and Michigan and Wisconsin. These are the sorts of Vichy Republicans, the, the surrender first Republicans that were losing these districts, that were watching these districts atrophy right underneath them, because we've seen it happen in Chicagoland suburbs, too, where now you have a socialist like Sean Caston in the same seat that was held by Henry Hyde, for goodness sakes. So I, I think, actually, uh, this is something to celebrate because uh, these are the sorts of, of, of enemies inside your perimeter that do to the party what the left cannot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean I, the, the fact of the matter is if you just if you comb the list, it's, it's just uh, a bunch of people from 10 years ago. Yeah.
Um, some other things that are unresolved is whether Biden can hold uh, his um, you know, modest lead, particularly when you just look at uh, battleground states. It's basically a dead heat uh, when he has to defend positions he's just recently adopted in support of the Green New Deal in support of Medicare for all. Uh, our former Chicago mayor, Rahm Emanuel, saying that uh, the two things that Biden should jettison are Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. But that's obviously not going to happen. I, I don't think he's quite, quite back to Medicare for all or the Green New Deal. I think he's, he's, he's kind of played it both ways. I think, you know, the official policy is, is more moderate than that, but he's also not repudiating those ideas either. Right. And so 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 now he's got to defend them on a stage where Trump is going to say to him, I mean, three times he's going to say this guy is for taking away private health insurance and this guy is for basically eliminating the energy sector uh, that drives our economy. And Biden's going to have to defend himself. He I mean, especially as the race gets close, whether he stays in his basement or not, he's got to perform on that debate stage. And I'm not talking about his mental acuity. I'm talking about his ability to defend these positions that are so far afield from where sort of the center of America is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's an interesting race. I mean, if you watched the, the convention last week, uh, like Biden is clearly a Democrat from another era, um, you know, just more moderate, more male, more white, old. Um, and, you know, the convention underneath him uh, from the vice president on down was, you know, was very, much younger and, and way more identity politics preoccupied. And so it's, it's a question, are, are people going to vote for Biden the man and, and sort of like a you know, hope that he's, a, he's, he's he is more moderate, like uh, you would think, or or is, is there going to be, you know, basically everybody knows he's he's a, he's a Trojan horse or something that's decidedly more radical. I think that that yeah. Uh, I wanted to speaking of personality, Trump was asked about that by Steve Hilton in that uh, Fox News sit down, and uh, this is what he said about his uh, personality attitude approach. First of all, I understand that a hundred percent, but I haven't been treated fairly. I was investigated by a phony deal on Russia. It was a phony deal. I had nothing to do with Russia. No phone calls, no nothing. I had nothing to do with it. And you had to fight that. Then they had a, a phone call of congratulations to Ukraine. I got impeached. I had to fight that. I have to fight back. If I don't fight back strong, I wouldn't be sitting here right now talking to you. So it's not like, gee, I'd like it to be calm, too. But one thing, I wouldn't have gotten all of these things. I can give you a list. It's four pages long. Right to try all of the medical things we've done, even the vaccines. We're almost going to have a vaccine. Somebody else would have taken years to get it. If I had a different attitude, that list would be one tenth as long as it is. Interesting. What do you say, Kurt? If he had a different attitude, he wouldn't have accomplished as much. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's 74 years old. I mean, he's Donald Trump. He, he's one of kind. And uh, I, I, don't think he, I, I don't think he should change it up now. He is Kurt Mills, senior reporter at the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We had a good chat with uh, Kurt Mills from the American Conservative about the RNC tonight, and I'm bookending that with David Marcus, who's coming up next after the break to talk about the same and uh, I want to set up our part of our conversation with David Marcus uh, a little bit here, a discussion of how the 
GOP is going to handle and President Trump going to handle the issue of racial justice in the context of law and order. This is uh, even more pronounced after what happened in Kenosha last night. So let's talk a little bit about Kenosha in advance of uh, our conversation with David Marcus. So officer involved shooting. We know a little bit more about the suspect. Uh, thanks to uh, some digging by Andy No, reporter who's familiar with uh, digging on um, these matters, uh, getting the, the drop on what's happening with some of the players precipitating urban unrest. Now, this was a domestic call. Kenosha police respond. The man is Jacob Blake. All we have right now is 30 seconds of video that shows him walking away from police. It appears in defiance of police orders to stand down to stay in place to not walk away from them walks to uh, the driver's side of apparently his vehicle opens the door one police officer trying to grab him by the shirt to prevent him from getting into his car and uh, he reaches for something we don't know a police officer shoots him uh, fire seven shots apparently only one hit him in the back he was transported to a milwaukee hospital where he's in serious condition hopefully he will make it uh, this sparks a night of violence, rioting, and looting. And here's what we, well, let's get to what transpired. Drew Hernandez, who's a reporter of sorts, he's got a a show called Lives Matter. I think he's out of California, but he was on scene in Kenosha last night, and here's his report. Uh, Just got done covering this entire riot. They set garbage trucks on fire. Uh, they went toe-to-toe with the police in front of the courthouse. Uh, they attempted, they attempted uh, to set a museum on fire. They set a car dealership on fire, uh, multiple cars. Um, it almost set a church ablaze, um, but the fire department has put it out. Um, this, this was uh, pretty extreme um, because of the shooting that took place today. Um, I'm sure an investigation will take place. And an investigation is, of course, taking place, and, and as would any police-involved shooting. Um, this is not a defense of the police. It is a defense of fact gathering, though, the position I'm taking here, which is it doesn't look good, but we have very little context and um, we're getting, you know, piecemeal information as often happens in these cases. So, for example, this individual who was shot, Jacob Blake is his name, of Racine, Wisconsin, has been uh, charged previously. He's got a history of assaulting police. He's had past charges for domestic abuse as well as a sex crime. There was an outstanding warrant for his arrest, we find. We don't know what police officers knew. We don't know if they've had interactions with him before, so they may have had more working knowledge of this individual than you can understand from uh, 30 seconds of a cell phone video out of context. Again, this is a relatively small community. It's 100,000 people, so it's not tiny. It's certainly possible they didn't know who this guy was. We don't know asking the question. But it it was a domestic call on somebody who's been involved in domestic calls before, clearly, and also uh, has been involved in um, gun-related crimes. He was uh, arrested for pulling a gun at a local bar after after he had refused to leave the premises. So we'll see. Uh, But you've heard what happened in response. And the question is then how should President Trump respond? What should be the message in response to this sort of lawlessness, which, again, over the weekend was not just in Kenosha and not just related to a police involved shooting. Uh, Denver uh, city leaders held a news conference on Sunday. Remember, this is Denver that just uh, shot down, no pun intended, a proposal to literally defund the police there. 
And that may that whole imbroglio may not be over, but a proposal to defund the police and replace them with unarmed mobile officers. Denver city leaders had to hold a news conference on Sunday to discuss arrests and destruction from riots on Saturday night. So this was not in response to the Kenosha shooting that has gone viral. A group of about 50 to 75 people rioted outside the Denver Police Department headquarters. They brought weapons to the table. They had guns. They brought explosives, axes, machetes. And had one intent purpose, and that was to harm our officers, said Murphy Robinson, Denver's public safety director. I want these anarchists to hear me clearly and loudly. This will not be tolerated in our city. You're not welcome here. Well, guess what? Um, The same thing was going on in Portland, as per usual, which has become like one big medieval fantasy game. It's just absurd. Videos, and I tweeted it out at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show rolling like uh, guillotines and down the middle of the street in addition to dressed in half-ass medieval garb the proud boys and the antifa and i don't know other people in between that were just sort of on the sidelines watching this um sort of you know as i said medieval fantasy game like a scene from the you know decent paul rudd movie role models uh, play out on the streets of portland but also minneapolis again It doesn't seem like this is going away. And so addressing it, unlike what happened at the DNC, which was to pretend that it's not happening, seems to be front and center for President Trump during this week, President Trump and his party, particularly as it relates to, as I said at the outset, this intersection between law and order and racial justice, particularly against the backdrops of claims that are being made from by the left to legitimize or rationalize violence and be and uh, endorsed by their political leaders or they uh, stand quietly by out of fear. Listen to the response, the statement that uh, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers made with respect to this police involved shooting in Kenosha. This was last night. So he didn't know there's no evidence that he knew any more than anybody else who had uh, seen the video online and was watching the police response, including to the rioting and looting in Kenosha. Uh, Jacob was shot in the back multiple times, and the report now is he was shot once. He was shot at multiple times, hit once, so that seems to indicate Evers didn't have any knowledge that anybody else, uh, uh, possessed no knowledge that anybody else didn't possess at that time. Shot multiple times in broad daylight, Kathy and I join his family, friends, and neighbors and hoping earnestly he will not succumb to his injuries. While we do not have all the details yet, what we know for certain is he's not the first black man or person to have been shot or injured or mercilessly killed at the hands of individuals and in law enforcement in our state or in our country. We stand with those who have and continue to demand justice, equality and accountability for black lives in our country. We stand against excessive use of force and immediate escalation when engaging black, capital B, Wisconsinites. It, it's a remarkably incendiary statement a remarkably racialized statement in the wake of an incident over which about which he knows very little because it was a white officer and a black man. It's necessarily involves race as an animating factor. He doesn't know that there's no reason to believe that. Uh, And he also uh, sort of insinuates out of the gate that this was a case of the use of excessive force. Well, based on what we know to this point, I wouldn't make a conclusion. I'd have a lot more questions that I'd like answers to, but apparently Governor Evers, a Democrat, is not so inquisitive. And I'll tell you what, this is the sort of response from Evers, as well as from those residents that looted Kenosha, that uh, could just push Wisconsin into the Trump column again in 2020, in November, if uh, he threads the needle properly 
about the rule of law and equal protection under it, as well as a concern for uh, racial justice for black Americans who believe they're mistreated by police. He needs to be the explainer in chief on both of these topics. And that's where we'll start with David Marcus right after the break. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. And we were talking about before the break, uh, the uh, police involved shooting in Kenosha and the response. This continues to present the challenge for both parties to address the combination of racial justice and law and order. The Democrats chose not to address law and order at all in their convention. How will Republicans thread that needle starting tonight when you have uh, individuals like Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina featured, who's been the sponsor of police reform legislation, as well as uh, candidates for Congress from uh, inner city America, like Kim Klasick from Baltimore. President Trump addressed the issue of the DNC on uh, Friday and really all weekend, but Friday in particular, the Council on National Policy meeting, he said this. But over the last week, the Democrats held the darkest and angriest and gloomiest convention in American history. They spent four straight days attacking America as racist and a horrible country that must be redeemed. And uh, just in case you thought President Trump was off base, the response to that comment over the weekend on the Sunday talkies from Nina Turner, who is a former Ohio state senator. She's a contributor to CNN, clearly, and she's also was a a surrogate for Bernie Sanders' campaign. Here was her reaction to Trump's reaction. The country does need to be redeemed. I don't know which convention he was looking at, though, but this country definitely needs to be redeemed. This country is racist. It's rooted in racism. And we talk about the story of immigration. It's not some pretty picture. It is a country that was founded on the backs and the blood and the sweat and the tears of enslaved Africans and then the first generation born on this soil of African Americans for generations. It is a nation that stole the land from indigenous people. I mean, come on, we're trying to get there to those high ideas, but we're not quite there yet. So I'm not surprised that President Trump would paint the Democratic Convention in that way. That is what he does. Well, it's actually sounds like something that you did, too. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist, thefederalist.com. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So how, how about that? Uh, how uh, Trump and his uh, surrogates and supporters starting tonight address this issue against the backdrop, b- backdrop of the latest police-involved shooting that uh, appears controversial in Kenosha, Wisconsin? I think the focus for Trump and for the Republicans in general is, is going to be a very basic sort of law and order argument. I think it's a little unclear Exactly what happened in regard to the shooting in Kenosha. I think sometimes these shootings are bad. Sometimes these shootings are proper. The reaction, though, of, of, of looting and, and setting things on fire and burning stuff, is just, it's not acceptable. And the Democrats, for whatever reason, aren't willing to say that. And so I think that's the, that's the distinction that Trump and the Republicans are going to want to make. Basically, just we're prepared to deal with this. The Democrats are just either going to pretend that it's not happening or say these are minor incidents. It's not a big deal. So I think I think you'll see a stark contrast starting tonight. And it seems to me there's an opportunity, particularly for Senator Scott, to uh, put a marker down on on a bigger conversation about race relations in this moment where 
the radical left is uh, is proposing things like resegregation in certain respects, in addition to condoning, if not rationalizing, uh, violence. Uh, and 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 Tim Scott, say, look, you know, I, I I've been targeted uh, in a lot of different directions throughout my life, and now I'm being targeted by the left because they say I'm not black enough. My proposal on police reform was token, right? And uh, and really to say, look, I'm proposing an approach to 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 redressing racial grievances that's rooted in opportunity. And they're proposing one that's rooted in dependency. I want you to speak your mind just as I'm going to speak mine. And they don't. Uh, It seems that there's a contrast that could be presented. And Tim Scott might be the ideal guy to do it. Yeah, I think that's right. I I think there's also I think there's also a, a very basic difference between in, generally speaking, the way people on the right today and people on the left talk about and define racism, um, people on the right, like Tim Scott, tend to have the traditional viewpoint where it is a moral issue of how you treat people, how you intend to treat people, um, treating everybody equally and the same. On the left, racism is not a moral question. It's a question of power. Um, so if you see disparate outcomes for different communities, that is, by their way of thinking, the definition of racism. Um, and also racism can only move in one direction. I have a, a piece up this morning about uh, the situation in the NBA where, where uh, you know, Luka Doncic, right. who's a, a white basketball player, had, had a, you know, epithet, racial epithet thrown at him. And, and not only did the NBA do nothing about it, the co- Doc Rivers, who's the coach of the player who said it, told Sports Illustrated there was nothing racial about that. And, and I mean, it's mind-boggling, but it actually makes sense within the framework of how the left views racism today. It, it really has nothing to do with morality. It really simply has to do with redistributing goods and and money and value when we come back with david marcus i want to talk a little bit more about the implications for some of this lawlessness in big cities including in new york city where he calls home david marcus new york correspondent for the federalist federalist.com we'll be right back i'm taking what they're giving because i'm working for a The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with David Marcus. He's the New York correspondent for The Federalist, thefederalist.com. And, uh, David, I, I read your piece, so I, I won't criticize New York because I'm not a New Yorker. I will <laughs> allow you to criticize Chicago, though, because I'm a friendly sort. But uh, but with respect to New York, I won't criticize it. I'll say thank you for presenting us Bill de Blasio, who properly framed uh, the Democrat Socialist Party in 2020, which is uh, when he said – that there's plenty of money in this country, it's just in the wrong hands. And uh, I think that should be revisited uh, this week as well, as you see the exodus from New York, as you see from other cities, my home city of Chicago included. Bill de Blasio is really the worst result of 
Anthony Weiner not being able to like stop sexting people because that that, that really <laughs> people forget that's that's really how Bill de Blasio became mayor. He's a disaster. The city is in in very bad shape right now. I mean, I've lived here for two decades, and when I walk around, there's literally bread lines every day. There was there was one that extended down my block not too long ago. Just murders and and violence. People don't feel safe on the subway. Subway windows are broken. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry Seinfeld has a piece in the New York Times today that is similar to my own, which says, like, look, you know, we're tough, we're arrogant, don't worry about it, we'll be fine. And all that's true, but it's pretty bad right now. It's sort of like all, all that's take. all that's true, but that but now without incident. And, you know, you have to right. you have to explain, you know, just what that incident is going to look like. And people seem to be wanting to gloss over that. It's a little a little bit of happy talk, it sounds to me. It is. You know, I, I don't know what the end game is here, because I don't think we're nearly bad enough. I don't think we're at, at, at a bad enough place like we were in 1992 when Rudy Giuliani was able to become mayor. And then we went. I, I guess almost 30 years w- without a Democrat being mayor. And I mean, listen, if, if you want to look at the difference between what happens in a, in a city with a Democrat mayor and a city with a Republican mayor, I, look at New York City from 92 up until Bill de Blasio in 2013 and what's happened since. I mean, you couldn't have a clearer example of what democratic mismanagement does to uh, to our wonderful cities. Well, and, and, and as you understand, um, you know, the impact of the disintegration of some of America's great cities is not just felt within the corporate boundaries of the cities. It's felt within the entire region, um, the entire country. And so, to some extent, we're talking about cities like New York and Chicago. And, and so I, I just wonder if how much of an, an effect that will have uh, uh, politically, uh, electorally, speaking of the November election. I mean, there's rumors circulating and, and feel free to dismiss this as crazy talk because I've had to do it in Chicago that New York state is actually in play in November for Trump. I saw news of a leaked poll that that showed Trump within five points. I I don't think that's going to happen, but I do think that one of the telling things about the fact that the the riot last night was in Kenosha, Wisconsin, is that that's not coastal. That's not a big major city. So, you know, the question, Trump is really banking on the fact that suburbanites are going to get freaked out by this. That's another part of the reason why Democrats want to downplay it as much as they possibly can. The more you see this kind of thing going on in places like Kenosha, as opposed to Chicago or New York, uh, I I think the the more likely it is that people will be scared because, I mean, they should be. Uh, Speaking of things that uh, Democrats don't want to believe happen, uh, one of them is voter fraud or problems with uh, mail-in voting. And uh, just across the way there in Patterson, New Jersey, New Jersey's third largest city, as has been covered for some time, but not really amplified by anybody other than the Wall Street Journal and some outlets like the Federalist. Uh, Patterson, New Jersey, a catastrophe of a local election, so much so that last week a state court found the election in the city's third ward was rife with um, rife with uh, mail-in vote procedural violations. Therefore, it was not fair. Therefore, they're doing a redo. Um so a redo in Patterson, New Jersey, which is not an inconsequential community, um, and it speaks to the concerns, legitimate concerns about mail-in voting as a at writ large, as the, the entire way to conduct an election. And, and I don't think if there are going to be problems in particular jurisdictions around the country on November 3rd, as it pertains to the presidential election, we're going to do a redo. I, no, I, I, I don't think we will. I well, you know, listen, obviously, obviously, as Attorney General Barr testified recently, 
uh, there's an opportunity for fraud in, in mail-in balloting that doesn't exist in in-person voting. But I got to be honest with you. I think the Democrats ought to be very, very careful about urging all of their voters to use mail-in ballots because an enormous number of mail-in ballots get invalidated because people make a mistake on them. The reason that we have poll workers is because you go in, you get your ballot, and it's sort of explained to you, like, here's what you do, and then you put it in the machine. Or, you know, when I was a kid, you pulled the lever, whatever it was, and then it counted. So, you know, I understand people have fears about the the coronavirus in, in terms of voting, but I would just say to anyone, if you want the best chance that your vote is going to count, you want to be at the polling place because there's all kinds of crazy Michigans that can go on with the with a mail in ballot. Yeah, you know what? And I, I agree with you, too. I think Democrats can be hoist by their own petard here, not just on that score, what you're describing, but also, I mean, just in terms of the motivated voter and uh, and, and younger people who've never uh, voted before, for example, you know, the, the, the 18 to 20 year old may never have voted before. And now I have to I have to get a ballot then I have to mail in a request or I have to mail in a request for ballot and I get the ballot and I have to mail that back. I mean, say some of these people don't even know where to get stamps. And that's with the post office staying open. Nine billion dollars uh, projected deficit this year, of course, all the post office conspiracy theorizing notwithstanding. Yeah, I mean, that's that's all just crazy talk. I mean, that's that's just, you know, we went from Russia to Ukraine to the post office. God knows what will be next. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, I, I have a 10 year old son. I don't think he's ever sent a letter. He barely even gets a letter. I don't think he'd know what it was. Um, so, yeah, I, the, the Democrats are playing a risky game uh, in terms of trying to get all their voters to. Uh, to do mail-in balloting. And and I share your fear that, forget about whether we'll wake up on November 4th and know who won. I don't know that we'll know who won on January 4th. I I mean, there's so much possibility of, of, you know, mistakes and miscounting and where are the ballots and all this stuff that you could end up back in the Supreme Court like we were in 2000. When we come back with Federalist.com's David Marcus, uh, a little bit more talk about... uh voter fraud prospects, as well as a theory in Anthony Fauci that could boost Trump's re-election. More with David Marcus right after this. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with David Marcus, Federalist.com's New York correspondent. And I wanted to pick up on your point of uh, voter fraud, uh, the point that you were making before the break. You know, look, all it takes is a couple of counties, uh, Broward and Miami-Dade in Florida, for example, and a couple more counties like that in a couple states. And you've got you know something that could go on for months. You're right. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I mean, the one thing that I think, that, you know, Democrats might be happy about in that regard is that they probably have a good chance of having John Roberts on their side at this point. I don't know. But, <laughs> but you know, aside from that, like, you know, either way that that went, I mean, it was bad enough after 2000. Like, there was a lot of animosity. I think we forget about it in part because of 9-11 and the, and the way that the country came together after that. But if we were to go through something like that, whichever side wins is not only going to have an asterisk, but it's going to be governing 
half of the people that they're governing are going to be absolutely furious and refuse to believe that the president is legitimate. I mean, we already have the, the, the Democrats treating Trump that way for the past three years. I mean, imagine what, what happens if, if we don't get a clear decision on this election. It, it, it has the potential to be a huge problem. Potential to be a huge problem as well as if Biden is elected and uh, he decides to listen to the scientists who say lockdown, he's happy to lock down the country, you know, to the extent he can. He's happy to institute a national mask mandate to the extent he can. But on the lockdown, you wrote recently that if Biden is ready to lock us all down again, then we should just elect Tony Fauci to be the president instead. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That was a shocking statement to me that Biden made. We didn't elect any scientists, right? Right. We, we elected president. The Democrats have this notion that, like, science with a capital S can just tell us what the right thing to do is. Obviously, a lockdown would be disaster, but it's it's more than that. I mean, we'll have this on climate change, right? Like, what if the climate scientists say you're not allowed to drive a car anymore? That's not how a representative democracy works. And Joe Biden doesn't seem to understand that. One of the things it seems to me Trump could have done and could still do, forget getting rid of Tony Fauci, as some conservatives have said. But what you could do is surround him with people that are equally credentialed. Bring more bring more scientists to bear, not fewer scientists to bear, and let the consensus opinion or the trusted opinion of, of some of the better epidemiologists, of which Fauci is is not on the level of Ionides, really, at least he wasn't before this in the academic community, um, let that carry the day. Yeah, look, I think that's a good idea. I do think that we certainly need to hear from scientists who have a, a different view than Fauci and, and Burks might. But it's bigger than that, because any scientist, like any doctor, is going to be laser focused on surely the medical aspect. Right? Right. And again, right. to use the analogy of going to the doctor, when you go to the doctor, they might tell you five things to do, including like don't eat dessert, quit smoking, whatever it is. They'll say, hey, Here's all the stuff you have to do to be healthy. Nobody does all of them. I mean, maybe some people do, but 95% of people take the advice and they say, well, wait a minute, I have other legitimate competing interests and I need to balance all of them. So that's what's been missing throughout this entire crisis is that, you know, when you bend the knee to the scientists in that way, you wind up ignoring other legitimate interests. There's other considerations. David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist at Federalist.com. David, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. And again, on um, Steve Hilton's show on Sunday evening on Fox, President Trump was asked about his second term. What's uh, top of the list of agenda items? And he uh, said this. But what do you want to get done if you're re-elected in the next four years that okay. you weren't able to do in the first I'd love to see school choice education-wise. It takes care of itself. It's the ultimate thing. I believe you're a fan of school choice. But Very much the so. Democrats are totally not. Well, most importantly, 
parents are. Well, the they parents know the parents are. for that children. The parents are. And so school choice is one thing. Education is very simple. School choice. And let the parent go and decide. Yeah, imagine that. And school choice is not just about, you know, sort of better schools, but better fits. There are a lot of good colleges and universities. Not every one is as good a fit as every other one for a particular student. But parents and the student, uh, particularly as that student gets older, can help can figure that out. And the other thing you see in a competitive model, of course, is that uh, the more successful models in terms of producing results tend to be replicated and scaled. And so, for example, uh, one school could be particularly proficient at uh, teaching children with that who have special needs, who have uh, learning disabilities. And that could be extended. This is what the McKay Scholarship Program did in Florida. And another school could be vocational. And it shouldn't, shouldn't be your neighborhood, your address or your household income shouldn't determine whether you can access these various schools. By the way, some schools may still be back uh, teaching foreign languages at mainly the high school level, you know, like the Chicago public school system, even though we've known that for 30 years even though we've known for the same period of time, as I want to say, that kids best learn science at the high school level in the following order, a physical science class first, then chemistry, then biology. But yet in these command control government school systems, the first science class taught is normally biology for high school freshmen. So in other words, rethinking how you do education all the way around to implement best practices, to borrow from those who are showing success with particular students that have particular challenges or particular abilities across the spectrum. This seems like an opportune time to have this conversation, which is why it's an opportune time to talk about uh, this book authored by Sanjay Sarma, uh, just released uh, last week, Grasp the Science Transforming How We Learn. Sanjay Sarma is the head of open learning at MIT and uh, the co-author of this book. Sanjay, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My great pleasure. So uh, with respect to uh, the experience that uh, families and students had with uh, remote learning in the spring, which according to um, some of the studies that looked into it, like one from Brown University, another from Washington uh, Washington University in, in Washington State, IHME Institute uh, was not particularly effective in terms of progressing the intellectual development of the students. Uh, and uh, many schools are pursuing the same thing here again in the fall. Uh, what should we be thinking about? What should parents be pushing, even if it's going to be a remote learning environment? Look, we're caught between two worlds, but to neither of which is optimal. We're caught between in-person teaching, which is fairly socially distanced to begin with, right? Students are not necessarily engaged in projects. They don't apply what they learn. It's a little bit still old-fashioned. It's like a freight train approach where, you, sh- you know, students have to drink from a fire hose and we judge them at the end to see how well they did, rather than really being student-centric. That's the pre-COVID, you know, in-class world. And the, if you want to do online, Khan Academy, you know, three blue, one brown. These guys know how to do online. They've done a fantastic job. By heart, uh, minute physics, really fantastic. Right now, in the COVID world, we've stuck these kids in front of Zoom. Two things have happened. One, we're seeing that the students are, you know, the parents have to deal with the students' distractions, so they're actually seeing it. And second, what little social pressure classroom uh, exerted, classrooms exerted is gone. So really what we need to do post-COVID is come, we'll go back and re-examine 
what we want to do in education. We make it more cognitively friendly, make it less of a fire hose, focus on true learning, you know? Uh, no, I, I do. I think that's right. I as I'm I want to quote uh, William Blake. Education is not the or I maybe I'm misquoting. Was it Blake or was it? No, I got that wrong. But anyway, the idea that education is not the uh, lighting, not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. And that's sort of what you get to in your book as well. This is about I think the uh, uh, one quote I saw from you, the metaphor you use is uh, it's like a plant growing. And so, um, you know, that that plant needs to be tended to holistically. That's right. I mean, look, uh, I think that quote, by the way, is good, goes back all the way to Plato. But um, the basic um, idea, maybe to Plutarch, one of them, the, the basic idea here is that a student is building a model of the world. Right. So, for example, when they learn math, you know, the connection to some experience they had that morning where they watched mom, you know, do something in accounting or something. Maybe she's an accountant. And by the way, if mom is not an accountant, but is a seamstress, they might not have that experience. So, so what we do, um, unfortunately, is put everyone on the same one-size-fits-all regimen. And that regimen leaves very little margin for error. And so the student, if they fall off the train, they fall off the train. I'm making a metaphors here, right? Now, the way to do online is to have very well-produced you know, online content like Sal Khan, others like that, three blue, one brown, where the students can consume stuff. But to make it likely that they're going to consume it, you have to make them curious. And it turns out curiosity is sort of an emotion that generates um, dopamine. You know, the brain wants to eat food. It's like saliva, right? Eat uh, um, knowledge. And once you make the student curious, they'll consume it online. But then the important part comes in, which is apply it, integrate it, get coached. Get your misunderstandings clarified. Work with the other students to see how they see it. And so what we've done right now in the classroom is it's socially distanced to begin with because, uh, frankly, and the U.S. is, by the way, not so bad. Other countries even worse. These students are just sitting passively. Uh, and, you know, you're throwing stuff at them. And then in the end, we have a high-stakes exam and declare victory. But you, you mentioned sort of concentrated uh, instruction. So make it 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, like the old saying about no good speech goes longer than 20 minutes. Make it concentrated so that it prompts some action so that it doesn't uh, uh, tolerate passivity for 45 minutes or 90 minutes. Make it uh, something that prompts action, whether in collaboration or just on your own, um, and do shorter bursts of information that's thought provoking. Yeah, there's a lot of science that shows that. Uh, it has to do with the way the brain architecture works, the way we absorb information, uh, the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus. Anyway, so the bottom line is that it turns out five to ten minutes bursts, if they're well scripted, are very effective. And then what you want to do at the end of that is take a break and give the students ways to think about it, uh, ask them questions about it, engage with it, and how would you use that information. Um, the 45-minute lecture is absolutely designed to induce passivity, which most parents are now seeing for the first time and having to struggle with, without a doubt. What, what about, and, and by the way, I, I was thinking before it was Yates, and now I'm going to have to shepherdize it all the way back to Plutarch, that uh, edu- education is not the filling of a pail, it's the laying of a fire, so now you've, now you've given me a homework assignment. Um, but uh, anyway, I digress. Um, so what about the school day? Uh, the school day, you know, this this whole idea of it's like eight thirty or nine o'clock to two o'clock. You know, that was uh, something that was a development of the of the Truman era, where you had mom at home waiting for the kids to get home for 
tomato soup and grilled cheese at two o'clock. That's not really uh, American society today. So and we also know from research that children actually tend to learn better if they start a little bit later in the day. And I wonder if that should be part of the conversation as well. Yeah, you know, but it's a, such an interconnected system. But yes, correct. I mean, there's research definitely that shows that starting later, just, especially in the teenage years, is better. Um, <clears throat> but then there are other issues, too. Let's say that your child really gets passionate about something, which happened to mine as well, actually. And she wanted to stay home, uh, stay in school for a few hours because she wanted to do a project. Well, how did she get home? So uh, certainly I think that on that front as well, you need to figure out how to adapt to the child. Basically, look, the system we design is convenient for adults right? It's convenient for our work. And it's, um, but what, if we want to transform these young people to become the CEOs of their own lives, which in the gig economy they're going to have to do, then we have to focus on a transformative agenda for, for the kids rather than something that just works conveniently for us. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary statement. He is Sanjay Sarma. He's the head of open learning at MIT, the author of the just released book, Grasp, the Science Transforming How We Learn. Sanjay, thanks so much for joining us and good luck with the book. Thanks a lot, folks. Take care. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. President Trump on China... In his discussion with Steve Hilton on Fox News last last evening, Trump had this to say on uh, his posture towards China and uh, what would happen if Joe Biden were to be elected. If he gets elected, China will own our country. I've taken billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars in taxes out of China. I gave them to our farmers because they targeted wrongly our farmers. They thought that would put pressure on me. They could get whatever they wanted. So they target us and it's no good. So if you look at... Um, what we've done with China, nobody's ever done. And um, it's an, if Biden is elected, China will take over our country. They've got a, a long way down the road before President Trump's presidency. And uh, now, now this, we talked about it when they passed it, this new national security law that China imposed on Hong Kong, and how, at least in China's mind, the Chinese communist mind, it extends beyond their boundaries. Well, it's extended into the Ivy League and to American higher education because of online classes. At Princeton University, students in a Chinese politics class will use codes instead of names on their work to protect their identities. At Amherst College, a professor is considering anonymous online chats so students can speak freely. Harvard Business School may exercise, may, excuse me, may excuse students from discussing politically sensitive topics if they're worried about the risks because if you run afoul of Chinese strictures on things like talking about Tiananmen Square, then you could face prosecution in China and Hong Kong. What if you're taking a class from Hong Kong because you're not on campus? Interesting response in the era of enforced orthodoxy of opinion on college campuses as they have become totalitarian reeducation camps. Rory Truex 
is at Princeton. He's an assistant professor who teaches Chinese politics. We cannot self-censor. If we as a Chinese teaching community out of fear stop teaching things like Tiananmen or Xinjiang or whatever sensitive topics the Chinese government doesn't want us to talk about, if we cave, then we've lost. Professor, wonderful statement on China. Could you apply it to every other aspect of life on the campus of Princeton University? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Jim Carafano. Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano is the vice president of Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. So first, uh, Trump's comment about uh, a Biden victory in China making us a subsidiary, if that happens. Well, you know, one of the interesting things about what's going to happen after November is China has a lot of cards to play. And regardless of who wins... In many ways, I think we're going to have to be reacting to the Chinese. Do they get more aggressive? Do they get less aggressive? So I'm not sure either president can really say, well, this is what we're going to do with China afterwards. I do think that if your strategy coming in really in any area of foreign policy is we'll just do the opposite of Trump, I think that's a huge mistake. In the Middle East, in Western Europe, in the Indo-Pacific, our strategy has, has effectively pushed back on all our competitors. I think walking away from that would be a a huge mistake, regardless of how November turns out. Nikki Haley speaks to the RNC or at the RNC this evening, former ambassador to the U.N., in addition to whatever Trump has to say about uh, uh, his uh, principled realist uh, foreign policy, in addition to whatever he has to say, what should Nikki Haley be touting? What should people take away from the first term of President Trump in the global well, you arena? You know, Ambassador Haley's actually been one of the really great explainers of U.S. policy the last four years in a way that I think is both incredibly accessible and very, very honest. I think the number one issue that really has to be addressed if folks care about or are going to vote on foreign policy at all is, you know, we constantly get this canard that Trump is losing alliances. We are losing allies. We are all alone in the world. The world is laughing at it. If you just walk around the world, Indo-Pacific, all the key alliances, Japan, Australia, India, stronger, uh, U.S., South Korea. We've, North Korea has been the quietest it's been in decades. The Middle East, adding uh, transformative alliances in the Middle East. Um, this administration is actually much better in Africa. Latin America, Brazil, Mexico, Central America, stronger. Uh, first president to do a U.S., Canada, Mexico trade deal in over a quarter century. Even in Western Europe, which, you know, people always talk about the Germans and the French, the Nordic countries' relations are stronger. Baltics, stronger. Central Europe, stronger. Southern Europe, stronger. The outcasts are really Germany and France. And, and to be honest, the problems of Germany and France have a lot to do with Germany and France. And sometimes just saying, well, it's all about Trump is really, for both of them, just an excuse. I would love to hear somebody get up and give an honest rendering of or accounting of what the state of U.S. alliances around the world actually are. What um, do you make of uh, the new round of rumors about Kim Jong-un that he's either uh, in mainland China or that he's dead and his sister is about to assume control? Uh, and, and of course, no one knows what to believe coming out of uh, Pyongyang. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, and I think you always go in with a assumption that you don't know what's going on until you actually know what's going on and you make policy on what you actually know. One of the things I like about U.S. strategy towards North Korea now in this maximum pressure campaign is is it defends U.S. interests. We don't want a war in the region. We don't want them to be able to attack us. We have missile defense, nuclear deterrence, conventional deterrence, very, very heavy sanctioning. Those things are, are really kind of a prophylactic that really prevents the North Koreans from doing us much harm. 
because we can never assume that we really know what's going on inside this regime of what they're going to do next. The uh, U.S. notified the U.N. last week that it was going to impose snapback sanctions on Iran for its failure to comply with the 2015 nuclear deal as Iran introduced two missiles, two new missiles last week. I think one named for Soleimani, uh, who you mentioned. And um, and there's some complaining about uh, the U.S. Uh, making this notification that snapback uh, sanctions uh, threatens to undermine the U.N. Well, snapback sanctions were part of what uh, Obama and Kerry touted uh, uh, when they were trying to sell this deal to the American public, that you know, there is a stick there if Iran doesn't comply. Well, it's true that Iran's cheated. That's unquestionable. It's exactly what the sanctions are there for. Um, even though the United States is not a party to the treaty, it's a member of the UN Security Council. That's where its authority to call for snapbacks come from. And even if countries don't want to honor that, we will. And and that'll make it very, very hard for anybody to, to do business or sell arms with um, with uh, uh, Iraq. So uh, Iran, sorry. So um, look, this was a step that the administration had to take. And and I think what's key here is not is that it's disappointing that we didn't have support from our British and German and, and French allies, who I, I they're they're wedded to something which is just a fantasy that somehow is well without this deal Iran might get a nuclear weapon. Well, look. Iran's been cheating all along. It's very clear that they have no intent to give up their nuclear weapons program, and that everything we've done now isn't preventing them from doing that. So clinging to something that do- that that doesn't work uh, is not a strategy. But it's the easy road, which is why I think our European allies have, have opted to go down it. I also think the Germans are more focused on whether or not to. Uh institute this law on dog walking where uh, you would be required to take your dogs for a walk, your dog or dogs for walks twice a day for a minimum of one hour total, or you could be sanctioned. I think they're focused on, you know, internal matters of import like this, Jim, that may be why. Well, you know, look, I, I, right now the German, German foreign policy is we just hope Biden gets elected. And and again, I'm not political. I'm not partisan. You know, I don't don't do campaigns. I don't care who you vote for, but that somehow the notion that, the reason why there are problems in U.S.-German relations is because of Trump. It's just, it's just not true. They're much, much, much deeper. And you know, you know, a different president isn't going to make the Germans' problems go away. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy Monday. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Well, both parties have spent the better part of the last several weeks uh, intermittently undermining the legitimacy of the outcome on November 3rd, suggesting, uh, as President Trump has, that there are problems with pushing for an all-vote-by-mail election. And we've seen those problems play out in real time. Talked to David Marcus about it earlier in the program with respect to the redo in the third ward election in Patterson, New Jersey, New Jersey's third largest city. We know of the problems in New York State with the administration of their election, where you still have uh, a congressional primary outcome uh, that is in controversy there. And, uh, you know, we know what, what has happened in previous elections. We know jurisdictions, including my home jurisdiction of Cook County, that are notorious for irregularity, shall we say. 
and so the arguments back and forth about the legitimacy of our electoral system. Uh, on the other side, right now, you have um, the really silliness of the continuing post office conspiracy theories in Chicago over the weekend, driving out of the post office in my neighborhood. There's a gaggle of four people who are searching for meaning in life, talking about save our post office as if the post office is under threat by anything other than their decades long mismanagement. So where does this leave us if you have a close election that maybe isn't decided the night of November 3rd or even the next morning? That maybe goes on at some length and uh, neither side will concede the legitimacy of an outcome that runs counter to their interests. That's exactly the topic that Andrew Bush took up in his piece at uh, AmericanMind.org. Andrew Bush is the Crown Professor of Government and George R. Roberts Fellow at Claremont McKenna College. And he joins us now. Professor Bush, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, Dan. So um, you uh, pick up on this uh, New York Times report on a, a set of simulations run by the Transition Integrity Project, which is uh, one of these bipartisan groups that uh, uh, I'll take your word for it. That is bipartisan. I'm always skeptical of that uh, adjective. But um, looking at uh, how the election could play out uh, with uh, just ordinary people playing the roles of some principles that could be decision makers, a la, you know, a redo of. 2000 and George W. Bush versus uh, Gore. And, um, and and the title of your piece is Sleepwalking into Secession. And uh, so just play out. I mean, if, if Trump thought uh, the DNC was dystopian, I found your column really dystopian. Play out the scenario, <laughs> <laughs> play out the scenarios of of how we could go from a disputed election to, you know, see, uh, seating or having the West Coast seat itself right out of the country. Right. So the uh, the Transition Integrity Project was bipartisan in the sense registered Republicans and people who were registered Democrats. The Republicans tended to be leaning to kind of to the never Trump Republican side. And so, uh, I mean, I haven't seen the full list of everybody who was involved, but the person who represented Joe Biden in the simulation was John Podesta, who's very well connected in Democratic circles. 2016, yeah, 2016 Clinton campaign chairman, right. The campaign chair for for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Uh, The two people who took turns playing Donald Trump, turns out, were Bill Kristol and David Frum, who are uh, very strongly (laughs) sort of anti-Trump. They're Republicans, but they're, I wouldn't say that they're connected to uh, President Trump's thinking. So, Uh, so, yeah, so. You know, they have a certain amount of animus. uh, No kidding. So in the simulation, did they concede defeat even if they won? I mean, uh, given those two. Yeah, no, no, they didn't do that. But they, what, what happened was uh, there were four scenarios. One of them was a clear Biden win in the popular vote in the Electoral College. And in that one, the simulation had Trump sort of hesitating to concede, uh, looking for ways of uh, reversing the situation, but ultimately conceding. The other three were much hairier uh, scenarios. One of them was a narrow Biden win in the popular vote in the Electoral College, both, but by very narrow margins. One of them was an ambiguous result where 
results in uh, North Carolina, Michigan, and Florida were going to be decisive, and they were so close that nobody could tell uh, yet who, who, you know, it was it was contestable who the winner was. And then the other scenario was where Joe Biden won the popular vote. It's kind of a redo of 2016. Joe Biden led in the nationally aggregated popular vote, but uh, Donald Trump won in the Electoral College. And in that particular case, John Podesta, who was playing Joe Biden, refused to concede. And in each of those three cases, two Trump cases and one Biden case, where they refused to concede, they didn't just kind of limit themselves to um, legal maneuvering as in 2000, but they undertook really dubious and and potentially very dangerous uh, steps to try to reverse the outcome. Let's let's hold it right there, and I want to get into exactly those steps under those scenarios, which are, of course, perfectly plausible, at least the baseline scenario as we stand here today. More with Andrew Bush, Crown Professor of Government and George R. Roberts Fellow at Claremont McKenna College. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. I feel like I'm uh, Matthew Broderick in War Games. We're playing some with Andrew Bush, Crown Professor of Government, and George R. Roberts, fellow Claremont McKenna College. Before the break, we were talking about these various election scenarios that were played out in the simulation, three of which included uh, either Trump or Biden not conceding the election. And then, Professor, you were about to delve into the sort of um, extra legal maneuvering that uh, uh, one camp or the other or both of them took in these scenarios. Right. In the two Trump scenarios where uh, the president refused to concede, the simulators, you could say the faux Trumps, attempted to, um, in some cases, get states where there were Republican legislatures, but that Trump had seemingly lost in the popular vote to send alternative pro-Trump Republican electors to certify those electors rather than the Biden electors. There was also a suggestion that the um, uh, the attorney general might be asked to intervene by um, ordering the confiscation of ballots and um, things of that sort. Uh, there and, was even a suggestion the, that... The alternative electors, that tactic, that actually has occurred in American history in 1876. Yeah, yeah it did occur in, 17, in 1876. That's right. The, the election was very close. There were 20 electors from four different states that were in dispute because there was fraud and there were all these uh, contests within these states. And so there was a Democratic set of electors and a Republican set of electors that were both sent to, uh, that were both allowed to vote. Depending on how those went, either the Republican candidate, Rutherford B. Hayes, was going to win or Samuel Tilden, who was Democrat, was going to win. So um, that was, that was a big mess. It's not an unprecedented thing, but it hasn't hasn't really happened um, in any way that was decisive since then. So it's an old tactic, an oldie but a goodie, <laughs> oldie but a but a not goodie. And uh, there were some suggestions that President Trump might uh, use federal officers to uh, try to intimidate voters or impose a kind of martial law. Uh, these seem to me to be. Um, at least, that, you know, that certainly seemed to be far-fetched. Uh, I, you know, I think um, there was an over-reading of what was being done in Portland. The uh, Integrity Project uh, 
seem to take uh, Portland as a kind of dry run for martial law when I, I see it very differently. It seems like the president was just trying to keep um, rioting mobs from burning down the federal courthouse. Uh, so I, I don't, uh, you know, draw much uh, from that. But um, uh, then you get to the Biden case. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. The Biden case. Okay. So in the Biden case, uh, John Podesta was Biden. He lost in the Electoral College, though he led in the popular vote. Uh, he said his party would not permit him to concede. So he he did the same thing that, that the Trump team did, which was to go to Democratic, or more or less the same thing. He went to Democratic governors in states that had been won by Trump uh, and got them to certify alternative uh, electors, uh, Democratic electors. Um, so that led to a crisis in itself because the Democratic House recognized the Democratic electors and the Republican Senate recognized the Republican electors and there was a stalemate. Um, but at that point, things really go off the rails because uh, at that point, the the faux Biden goes well beyond anything that, that Trump had done in these simulations, the, the faux Trump, I guess uh, you could say. Uh, and that is uh, that he actually uh, worked with the governors of California, Oregon and Washington state to uh, to get them to threaten secession from the United States unless there was a major package of uh, constitutional reforms adopted, uh, including abolition of the Electoral College. And this isn't quite a constitutional uh, reform directly, but uh, a massive expansion of the Senate uh, by splitting California into five states uh, and giving statehood to the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, which would basically stack the Senate with with a bunch of more uh, Democrats, uh, Democratic senators. Well, well, so, just just uh, on, if I can interrupt, just on the the electors issue yeah. and certifying an alternative uh, slate of electors, doesn't the Supreme Court's recent decision on faithless electors apply in such a scenario? Well, the uh, the Supreme Court's decision uh, would come into play. The Supreme Court's decision basically was that. Uh, electors uh, have to obey state law, that if state law instructs them to vote in a particular way, then they they need to do that. Um, but state law provides for different actors uh, different, you know, to play a part in the certification of the, yeah. of the electors. Yeah. And so um, there, there is some room for uh, disputes. And, and uh, what about this? I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. What, what about the scenario that's no? being bandied about? Uh, the idea that if there's not a, a result, if you have uh, uh, some counties in some states, several counties across several states that uh, have problems, as we've seen in New York State, as we've seen in Patterson, New Jersey, and you have uh, fights over the uh, count and so forth, and this extends uh, into January, you could have the scenario of Nancy Pelosi being elevated to the president of the United States pending the outcome of the election. Yeah, that's a theory that's been been thrown out there, and I think it's plausible. Um, if there is no undisputed winner uh, of the presidential election by inauguration day, then there's no president. I mean, it's that that'd be one theory that there's no president. Uh, Donald Trump's term has ended. It's not been uh, certified that he gets to go to a second term. Uh, Joe Biden hasn't clearly won. Uh, and so the um, the next person in line uh, to be president after the president, the vice president, the speaker. So um, that's that is uh, a plausible 
a scenario. I'm sure that that would wind up going to the Supreme Court, but I, I think that's there's a good chance that it would wind up that way. The Constitution doesn't really describe what happens in that kind of scenario, though, because you know what the what the Constitution is referring to is when when there's a the president is is, is uh, you know the president and vice president are both killed or they both resign simultaneously or something like that. Uh, and the the question is who becomes the president from the, you know at that point it, it doesn't really envision a temporary president uh, in in that case who would uh, surrender the presidency once the electoral dispute is resolved so I think there would be some some uh, dispute over that um, especially if it turned out that Donald Trump uh, was declared the winner you could conceivably wind up in a situation where Supreme Court would have to decide if he uh, actually gets to be president now, uh, or if the, the window has passed and Nancy Pelosi is president and uh, she has a term. He is Andrew Bush, Crown Professor of Government and George R. Roberts Fellow at Claremont McKenna College. Professor Bush, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And just going back to uh, our conversation on a number of topics related to the RNC last hour, including uh, the commentary on race relations in this country. You expect that Tim Scott will say something about that. Uh, perhaps some of the other candidates, including Kim Klasick, uh from uh, Baltimore, Republican candidate for Baltimore, maybe uh, even Nikki Haley will. I assume she'll stay in the foreign policy arena generally, but maybe not. Uh, you can cover uh, more than one topic, certainly. Um so I wanted to go back to something I was remiss in failing to address last week after Biden's acceptance speech at the Democrat Socialist National Convention, which is his repetition of this falsity uh, that President Trump said uh, white nationalists and neo-Nazis in Charlottesville three years ago were fine people, good guys. This continues to be repeated and, of course, unchallenged by the D.C. press corps. And it was repeated by Biden again the day after in the joint interview he and Kamala Harris did with ABC News, Robin Roberts and David Muir. This is a Joe Biden saying it again, knowing or he should know it's untrue. No president said people coming out of fields with torches and, and spewing anti-Semitic bile and met by people who oppose them and someone dies and he says they're good people on both sides. No president of the United States has ever said anything like that. Ever. That's right. Uh, well, uh, it's partially right in terms of no president has ever said that. Um, well, it's um, it's certainly right that the current president never said it. And so, again, institutional knowledge that we possess on this show that few others do. Let's go back to August of 2017 and President Trump on the protests that led to violence that led to the unfortunate death of a young lady three years ago. 
You're changing history, you're changing culture, and you had people, and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists, because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. Did you catch that? I'm not talking about the white nationalists and the neo-Nazis who deserve to be condemned. But you had other people that the press has treated badly, not the white nationalists and the neo-Nazis. So please share that with the drones in your social circle who continue to repeat the lie that Joe Biden continues to tell. And then tell me again about Joe Biden's character. Hail fellow well met. He's a slimy liar on this topic for the purpose. And it's particularly slimy because what's the purpose to incite racial division? Listen to Trump's words, the full context of them. And it's only 20 seconds of, you know, a extended press briefing he gave at the time. And yet three, three years later, it persists in the same way that the left's Russian collusion narrative persists, in spite of all the evidence. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Yeah, I've got an idea how to maybe bring some people back to their senses, particularly people in governor's offices and mayor's offices and positions of authority in K through 12 education or, frankly, collegiate education for that matter. Uh, the idea comes to us from uh, our friends in Japan. Japanese group is trying to take people's minds off COVID-19 by putting them in coffins surrounded by chainsaw wielding zombies. Customers in Tokyo can lie in a two-meter windowed box listening to a horror story, watching actors perform and getting poked with fake hands and squirted with water. The coordinator of the production company putting this on, Scare Squad, uh, the pandemic is stressful and we hope people can get a bit of relief by having a good scream. And it's only about uh, seven and a half bucks uh, a show. Sort of like those uh, rooms, those tantrum rooms you can go to and just destroy everything. Maybe they should uh, install one in every governor's mansion. We mentioned this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week by uh, Dr. Joel Zinberg. This just, uh, strikes me as such an important part of the COVID-19 story and the administration's response. I don't know why it's just being told now. So uh, we got uh, Dr. Zinberg on the program to help us understand Dr. Joel Zinberg. He's also a J.D., uh, he's and he's a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C., associate clinical professor of surgery at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Zinberg, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Glad so to be here. Um, so uh, we find out last week, thanks to this piece by uh, you and Tomas Philipson, a colleague of yours who's uh, over at University of Chicago, professor of public policy there, that the White House actually did prepare for a pandemic. And uh, you, too, among others, were in charge of that preparation. And it is particularly relevant to the pursuit of a vaccine. And this was last fall. I'm glad you told the story, you and your colleague. I don't know why this story hasn't been told. Maybe it should be told this week as part of the convention, explaining to the American people 
what exactly the administration was doing in advance of knowing that this virus would strike in 2020 and uh, and then what it's done every step of the way since. But but the, the preparation for the pandemic explain. Well, so, you know, you undoubtedly your listeners have heard the story that was uh, circulated last week by the Democratic convention that the Trump administration was dysfunctional, according to Governor Cuomo, my state, New York, that it's incompetent, and it didn't even see it coming. And just the, the reverse is true. We were uh, commissioned by the National Security Council, which was concerned about the health impacts and the economic impacts and the impact on national security that an influenza pandemic could have. And they commissioned us to write a report what those impacts could be and what we ought to do about it. So I was part of a team from uh, uh, Phillipson that wrote this report, and we talked about the uh, severe impacts uh, in terms of lost life and economic losses that and health losses that we have, and we discussed strategies to improve vaccine production and limit those losses. And those, those, those lessons were applied by the administration to the new coronavirus. Uh, well, and, and there's a story out in Financial Times about uh, the White House uh, looking to potentially uh, fast-track the AstraZeneca offering. Um, is there any reason that, uh, that, 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 well, I don't know, one, number one, if you know if that's true or not, number two, is there any reason at this point, any basis at this point to try and fast-track one of the promising vaccines in development from the others? No, I, I think what, what's happening is the administration is pushing the FDA to remove any kind of barriers uh, to vaccine development and push to get something approved quickly. But I think the FDA has been very clear they're not going to cut any corners. They want to really make sure things are safe and, and they'll be effective. So I don't think anyone needs to worry that anything that this is going to be pushed through and it's not really proven to be effective. So and I don't know specifically that they're pushing the, the uh, AstraZeneca one. I know there have been reports, uh, but I think the, the administration is really pushing any of the vaccines that appear promising. As well as therapeutics with the FDA authorizing the use of convalescent plasma. Uh, Correct. And they, they were very early on authorized remdesivir, which is a drug which has proven to shorten the course of uh, COVID-19. Uh, the, the story in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend mentioned a bit earlier in the program about the Congress allocated $25 billion for federal agencies and states to expand testing, develop contact tracing initiatives, broaden disease surveillance. And uh, this has been the mantra of uh, the Democrats about uh, testing, 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 contract tra- contact tracing and all that. Um, according to HHS data, only about 10 to 15 percent of the 25 billion allocated has been drawn down in the ensuing four months. How should we understand all that money being allocated, all that emphasis on testing and contact tracing? And here we are four months later and, and a small fraction of it's been deployed. Well, the, the thing is, things like testing and contact tracing are typically undertaken at the state and local level. And many of the states do not have well-developed enterprises to do this. They just aren't unprepared and they haven't been able to ramp it up quickly enough. So many of those efforts, while we've known about these and these are, are well, you know, well-known public health measures that have been known for decades and, and longer, uh, they're not really set up at the state and local level to do it, and they therefore have not utilized all the funds that have been made available to them. And, it, it, you know, it seems to me that uh, the reporting and the discussion on this is so stilted as if, if, for example, and Tyler Cohen writes about this at Bloomberg, 
if you uh, end college football, then then everybody just goes back into some hyperbaric chamber where they wait out the virus rather than what actually happens, which is kids are on college campus, even if they're just taking classes remotely from their dorm room. And they're much more likely to be fraternizing, whether literally in a fraternity or out at the bars or at a restaurant or on the beach or wherever. And um, uh, Cohen writes, for all the talk of banning athletics, how about university regulations banning all alcohol consumption, including off campus for all registered students under the pain of suspension? Because, look, what we know is it's not athletic practices. It's more social congregations where the virus has spread to the extent it has among this this uh, age cohort. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we, as we know from uh, our history of prohibition, banning alcohol is uh, not something that's so easily accomplished. However, I think the important thing to know is that if kids are on campus where you can establish rules and enforce them, they're probably much safer than if you send them home where you can't enforce those rules and where they're then going to go infect their grandmothers and, and family members who are various underlying illnesses. So yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I think whether you, you believe in the alcohol restrictions or not, it's it's sort of secondary just to that. This is on every topic related to COVID. We pretend that they're not we meaning you and me, but that, that people pretend there are no trade-offs. If we just do this, then it stops everything rather than no, it creates a, uh, a the, the, the response and the response is this. Now, what do you do about this? And then you're chasing your tail. Right. And what's what's happening is they're saying, don't come to campus because that's too dangerous. So where do they anticipate those kids are going to go? They're going to be living off campus and going to the parties that you described, whereas if they were on campus, you have a much better chance of policing it. Uh, something else that's happening at the state level, in particular, these quarantines for, for travel to uh, hotbed, uh, hotspot states, uh, however defined, and that's always a moving target. Uh, you wrote about this in City Journal recently, characterizing these quarantines like the one initiated by Governor Cuomo in New York, which is uh, not dissimilar to the one initiated by my home state, Governor Pritzker in Illinois, that they're pointless. Right. Well, I mean, you know, Governor Cuomo, uh, along with the uh, adjacent states of Connecticut and New Jersey, has initiated this quarantine that now covers more than 30 states. In other words, outside of the Northeast, virtually every state in the Union is considered a restricted state, and people have to quarantine for 14 days if they come back from one of those states. First of all, it's a relatively unenforceable thing. Secondly, what does it do? It penalizes New Yorkers. They now can't travel to any one of those other states without tacking two weeks onto their vacation or business trip. And it also penalizes New York business because no tourists and no business person is going to want to travel to New York if they have to quarantine for 14 days. And the problem is it doesn't accomplish anything. If you look, if you look at the criteria they set up to define a restricted state, it means that any state that has a, about a 1 in 10,000 chance of someone being infected can't, is on that list. That's a minuscule chance. I, I, and to say that those people should be restricted, any random traveler without any other information should be restricted is just silly. And, and also, you note, it, it does not apply to people who stay in one of these hotspots for less than 24 hours. But there's nothing magical about 24 hours. That's an arbitrary number, too. That's what I wrote. Someone who's in a, in a COVID hotspot for 24 hours and goes to the gym and goes to a restaurant and gets a tattoo, they're okay. They're <laughs> right. He is Dr. Joel Zinberg. He's a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C. and associate clinical professor of surgery 
at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Zinberg, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to switch from our discussion of COVID with Dr. Zinberg. Go back to uh, race relations in America and the claims being made peacefully and some not so peacefully, particularly by black Americans in the form of Black Lives Matter, but not limited to that, about uh, what constitutes racial justice in this country for America's sins. Uh, Some uh, arguing that um, there is no reconciliation possible, that um, racism is hardwired into our DNA as a nation. Well, Ice Cube Yes, Ice Cube, NWA fame, who then you know, flipped over and did these sort of schlocky uh, uh, you know, family movies. But hey, you know, I get it. Take opportunity where it comes. Uh, Ice Cube took to uh, the Internet in response to the DNC and um, offered some suggestions. He sort of half gets it. He half gets the half he gets is that uh, the DN, the Democrat socialist rhetoric of 2020 is no different than really it's been for the better part of 50 years as they've advocated funding the welfare state and not supporting opportunities for black families. They supported an infrastructure that essentially keeps people in poverty by incentivizing dependents rather than families in a way that puts them on a path to independence. He sort of gets that part. And so he doesn't want to walk in lockstep with the Democrat socialists. He wants to know what's in it for black Americans. Fair enough. That's the half he gets right. So over the last four days, the Democratic National Party held a convention. A lot of people, you know what I mean, getting up there and talking and everybody really eating it up, you know, throwing their hands in the air like they just don't care down there. So... (laughs) It's, it's, uh, it the rhyming. You know, what I didn't hear is what's in it for us? What's in it for the black community besides the same old thing we've been getting from these uh, parties? What's in it for us for real? Fair question. And by the way, um, Straight Outta Compton, the movie that uh, was essentially uh, a uh, the telling of the tale of N.W.A. is very good. Uh, rest in peace, easy. Here's the thing. What's in it for us? That's a, f- a fair question to ask, and uh, Ice Cube has an answer, too. But one thing I'd like to hear from Ice Cube and uh, just people generally across the racial spectrum, across the ideological spectrum, across every spectrum, age spectrum, it's just a little bit of gratitude about being in America, a little gratitude for the opportunities that one has been able to pursue that has led them, in the case of Ice Cube, to untold generational wealth. I mean, Ice Cube's uh, net worth is estimated at north of $150 million. You would think that you may want to start with, rather than this angry black guy NWA shtick, which is a little bit old for a middle-aged Ice Cube, to just say, you know what, I've been lucky. I had a talent. I got together with some other guys that had talent. We were able to uh, uh, monetize our talent, and we did really well in life. 
We had a great I had a great run in music industry. I've had a great run in Hollywood, and uh, my family and my kids are going to be better off for generations to come thanks to it. And so that's the great thing about America. The problem is there's not enough people or there are too many people that don't have opportunities like I had to find a path for their skills to allow their skills to flourish in such a way that puts them on a path to call their own shots and to provide a better life for their children. If you would say, you know, you don't have to say it in like uh, boring white guy speak like me, but you can say it in your own words, same effect. Some gratitude for what you were able to do. You built it, Ice Cube, what you were able to do in this country, because this country provides opportunities for stories like the Ice Cubes of the world to happen. But that wasn't forthcoming. Instead, you got this. The way it look, they don't have a plan. Everybody's, you know, talking about get Trump out, get Trump out, get Trump out. If you vote, that, that's going to happen in, on the first day. So now what? Trump out, now what? What? What do we get in the first hundred days? That's what we're trying to figure out. What do we actually get that we that they could give us overnight like that? They just pulled three trillion dollars out there and gave it to their friends. That's American taxpayer money. That's your money that they just gave away. And then there's half 42 percent of black businesses closing. None of that money. Where's the, where's our bill out? Where's the bell out? Not the PPP loan that they that they didn't give us. Where's the bell out? I don't want to hear about deficit. I don't want to hear about uh, what our our generations gonna have to pay. Cause if we don't have, shit, they ain't gonna have shit anyway to pay nothing. So we gotta start something right now. Democrats don't seem like they got a plan. Republicans don't seem like they got a plan for us. So how the hell are you gonna vote for them? Make them. Make them earn that vote. Uh, that's fair enough. But, you know, your um, we and us business when it comes to if uh, don't have stuff now, not going to have stuff to pass on. You're not in that camp, are you, Ice Cube? Can we be real honest for a minute? And so uh, what's the plan? Well, Ice Cube endorses this so-called contract with black America that uh, was produced by uh, – professor at Ohio State, a couple of professors at Ohio State. And um, it's the same all the last 50 years. It's welfare state and race uh, count by uh, race uh, num- uh, numerology policies expanded. The same policies that have failed, the same policies he's lamenting in terms of the results they've produced. You, what's in it for us? 50 years later, what's in it for us? The, all the welfare state policies did what? Created dependency, not opportunity. And so He wants to support policies like affirmative action at all all secondary schools, colleges, universities, public and private. Black enrollment must meet or exceed the percentage of black population nationwide, 13 percent. Local funding for schools determined on an equal per student fund for all schools throughout the state. Extra funding for disabled, disadvantaged, uh, mandatory civil rights and anti-racism classes, all in elementary schools, black representation, all government civil rights investigative bodies. Reform gerrymandering. Uh, well, if you reform gerrymandering, you have, might have some members of the Black Caucus that wouldn't be happy about that. Juneteenth become a federal holiday. Uh, all uh, limiting uh, or, or allocating bank loans based on the percentage of population. All bank loans will uh, constitute at least 13.4% of all loans per the black population. Federal Reserve allow one-time interest-free loan for home ownership. 
and just on and on and on through every category. And it's and so much of it is entitlement by racial identity, conference of benefits by racial identity, ab, uh, absolution for responsibility by racial identity. It's the same policies, bigger and in some cases smaller, meaning just more down to the granular level that have been pursued for 50 years plus to actually more than no great benefit, serious harm. It's unfortunate because it would be nice if um, since Ice Cube is starting to think independently about uh, just falling in line with the Democrat socialists, if he could think a little bit more uh, on the policy issues, get past partisan identity and think about a little bit more about the policy issues, connect those same dots with what was promised via what policy and what has actually been delivered. And uh, maybe he would come up with different suggestions. Maybe there would be more open-mindedness towards moving away from government as the provider to an understanding that government has been the inhibitor. This is Dan Proft. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Listen to the podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. And uh, President Trump, uh, in that uh, interview he gave with Steve Hilton, Fox News Channel, over the weekend, was uh, asked about a second term, including uh, a, a uh, as it pertains to his approach to the Chinese, a lot of discussion of decoupling from China, effectively. That was the language the president used, although he wasn't willing to make that commitment at this point, but he did express a lot of frustration with the Chinese communists, to say the least. And he had uh, that to offer, as well as his characterization of what would happen to America were Biden to win vis-a-vis the Chinese communists. If he gets elected, China will own our country. I've taken billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars in taxes out of China. I gave them to our farmers because they targeted wrongly our farmers. They thought that would put pressure on me. They could get whatever they wanted. So they target us and it's no good. So if you look at um, what we've done with China, nobody's ever done to China. But there is a lot more to do. And we've talked about it in this program with the Confucius Institutes around the country and the other ways in which Chinese communists have attempted to insinuate themselves into American life. Uh, I mean, you just had the Chinese embassy in Houston shuttered for propagating uh, incendiary Black Lives Matter uh, messaging, as well as other breaches of uh, domestic engagement. Uh, And then we have this from the Wall Street Journal last week reporting, as we talked about a little bit earlier in the show with Jim Carafano from the Heritage Foundation, that uh, classes at uh, universities, including in the Ivy League, are uh, issuing warning labels associated with certain courses on Chinese politics so as to insulate Chinese students who may not be on campus, may be taking classes remotely, like in Hong Kong, from prosecution under a quote-unquote National Security Act that's really... uh, dressed up a national security act that 
dressed up. It's really just more like speech codes uh, memorialized into law that extend beyond the borders of the China, of China, at least according to the Chinese communists. And so Princeton is working to protect the identities of their students at Amherst, a professor considering anonymous online chats so students can speak freely. Harvard Business may excuse students from discussing politically sensitive topics if they're worried about the uh, legal risks to their students. A uh, Princeton professor, Rory Truex, uh, teaches Chinese politics there. We cannot self-censor. If we as a Chinese teaching community out of fear stop teaching things like Tiananmen or Xinjiang or whatever sensitive topic the Chinese government doesn't want us talking about. If we cave, then we've lost. If only professors would take if we've caved, then we've lost uh, to uh, the Jacobin mobs on campus as well. But I guess the Chinese communists is a good place to start. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Weifeng Zong, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Weifeng, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ben. So what was your reaction to uh, this story about uh, the approach of uh, some of the, you know, according to reputation, premier universities in the West, like Princeton and Harvard and Amherst, to uh, this uh, threat that some of their students are under uh, per the Chinese communist, um, uh, you know, speech restrictions? I think the core of the problem is that there has to be a trade-off between the level of engagement with China, even in this academic sense, and to prevent any possible self-censorship by professors. And I, while I admire those professors trying to tag their class as possibly being sensitive, I think this kind of voluntary tagging might be the worst of both worlds because, first of all, it helps the Chinese regime, right? because the Chinese operatives now know, know uh, where to look because they would just spy on those classes where there's a tax showing the extensity. And another uh, drawback is that there might be some professors who are on the margin thinking that, you know, I may or may not talk about sensitive subject. I, I don't really care to talk about sensitive subject. So maybe I just don't tag my class as sensitive and I just don't talk about it. So you, it actually leaves the room for some degree of self-censorship. And not to mention that, you know, some Chinese students, they would, deliberately not register for those classes that are tech uh, sensitive. Uh, and so you get in uh, disengagement anyway. So I think it's not, I mean, I admire their uh, courage to try to uphold their freedom of speech. But I think this uh, voluntary tagging system may not be the best solution. Yeah, I want when we come back with uh, Wei Feng Zong, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, I want to talk about what may be a better approach than essentially doing the bidding of the Chinese communists even if you're just trying to insulate students. More with uh, Wei Fong right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're joined by Wei Feng Zong, who's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And we're talking about the reach of the Chinese communists into uh, institutions of higher learning, ostensibly, in uh, America, including the Ivy League. This uh, national security law 
that the Chinese Communists instituted, which they uh, announced applies globally, uh, even though, again, Chinese law has no standing in America. But uh, Chinese nationals concerned of, and, and the professors who instruct them, uh, the concern about uh, their safety and freedom is causing Harvard and Princeton and other universities perhaps to put warning labels on classes, which will have the unintended consequences. And it's not surprising Ivy League professors wouldn't understand unintended consequences of uh, getting Chinese students, Chinese nationals to disengage either by shutting up if they take the class or by just not taking the classes that have those warning labels to begin with. So what's the point of that? So, uh, Wei Feng, what's a better approach for colleges and universities in America to take as it pertains to Chinese nationals? I think to look for a better approach, uh, we we have to start by accepting the fact that there may be some degree of disengagement and some degree of self-censorship and try to limit the harm here. I think mandatory tagging all classes in universities and colleges, whether it's natural sciences or in social sciences, tag them all as possibly containing material sensitive to the Chinese government may be a better solution because then you take away the option for some uh, professors on the margin to decide whether to actually talk about that or to, to avoid the subject to keep your students because then when every class has a label it's no longer an option to self-censor uh and 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 how real is that threat uh under that that national security law to uh chinese students so there are reports telling stories about when returning chinese students so when they return to china from america and they got uh visited by you know national security police in china saying that oh you treated this thing that's uh, critical to the chinese government and you shouldn't have done that so there are reports on that. And there's even a U.S. citizen now being a fugitive of his national security law just because that person was lobbying for measures in Congress to go tough on China over the issue of Hong Kong. So I think the danger here is real, and not to mention that some of the China scholars in the, in the U.S., American professors, that they used to visit China often, but then there's the concern of whether they would be, get uh, prosecuted or got uh, you know, arrested when they enter China. What about uh, the Confucius Institutes here that uh, have arguably compromised some American scholars? I mean, you had a Harvard University professor who was actually indicted uh, related to that. Is that something that the administration needs to take a harder look and a harder line on? I think absolutely. And the fact that there is already some degree of self-censorship among academics over the issue, at least uh, on China, but also on something else. It's a fact that has been around for years. So, so Confucius Institute is an effort that has been going on for many years. And I, I think now it's really just when people start to take a hard look on these issues that are um, absolutely real. What about um, how do you react uh, to concerns expressed, I mean, uh, about the percentage of Chinese nationals that are in American universities, particularly given the increasingly chilly relations between the two countries. They come here, uh, some come here and get educated and go back, and there's con- that concern. And there's also just the very uh, parochial concern, like for uh, people, families in my home state of Illinois, where you have a high percentage of Chinese nationals that are uh, c- that comprise the student body at the University of Illinois, for example, in Champaign, a good engineering school, and um, and that and so that university is really failing to live up to its land grant uh, commitment to the people by uh, opting for Chinese foreign nationals who are paying full freight as compared to um, uh, American students, and particularly those from Illinois, who uh, have similar academic records, but 
would be paying in-state tuition rather than, you know, sort of the full foreign national tuition. So it's a, a financial decision more than an academic one. Yeah, so I think the fact that the economic interest is high in a lot of colleges and universities says that, you know, the modern challenge to free speech, including on the college campus, may not because, you know, the government, or in this particular case, the Chinese government coming directly after you, but the fact that there are so much interest in, involved and then you might be voluntarily self-censored by adjusting your speech so that you can get more audience or you can keep your revenues from those uh, Chinese students. So I think it, it is a challenge. So not to say there is a, a perfect solution, but I think the you know, policymakers and the American public should start at least uh, seriously debate about this issue and how to deal with it. Yeah, and, and, and again, right, I'm, I'm uh, suggesting uh, some consideration for a surgical approach as well. And for example... I mean, I, you know, uh, my posture is may continue to make America a beacon for the, the best and the brightest the world over and, and welcome people to be educated here. But people that perhaps have another agenda or are connected, directly connected to people with another agenda as it pertains to American interests, that's sort of a different story. Uh, we've seen that in the military when you had that terrorist attack in Florida uh, with that Saudi Arabian soldier, and we reconsider our policy. With respect to some of the uh, spycraft going on on behalf of the Chinese communists in this country, it seems to me maybe we take a closer look at, for example, the sons or daughters of higher ups in the Chinese Communist Party. uh, And uh, they deserve more scrutiny, for example, than your uh, average Chinese foreign national who wants to go to higher uh, wants to go to to a college or university here. Is that is that a fair uh, thought process? Yeah, I think it's it's fair uh, thought process. And on that subject, uh, you know, it's not even secret anymore that the daughter of the Chinese president used to go to Harvard for uh, undergrad, you know, and uh, the son a son of the, the chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, also is going to Harvard. You know, we have a lot of Chinese uh, students from among Chinese elite, students of Chinese elite who are in a lot of uni- universities and colleges in, in, in the U.S., and that's a serious problem. Of, of course, we... We know, we, we understand the value and we treasure the value of upholding freedom of speech, even including educating those people who are children of the Chinese elite. But there are always some opportunities or some room for, you know, players in this situation, the, the, the educators or the professors, uh, to some room for them to self-censor. And so I think the, the role of policy in this case is to to make sure that we, we can cut down on those opportunities as much as possible. And so, so that's why I suggested the solution at the beginning that, you know, a mandatory uh, tagging of all classes that essentially every class could potentially touch upon subjects that are sensitive for, uh, sensitive to the Chinese government, right? Even natural science. What, what if it's a class of virology, right? Do you talk about coronavirus disease, whether it's novel or not? And then you, you could potentially run into sensitive subjects as well. So I think it's quite universal. Wafeng, uh, Weifeng Song, who's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, Weifeng, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Always my pleasure. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. I didn't want to spend too much time on this, but I feel like I'm compelled to comment on the 
departure of Kellyanne and the secret taping of Marianne. Of course, on the former, I'm talking about Kellyanne Conway to leave the White House by the end of this month. And George Conway, her anti-Trump, <laughs> to say the least, husband also leaving the Lincoln Project, this uh, independent expenditure pact that's uh, targeting President Trump for elimination to focus on their uh, kid. They're both sort of taking a step back from politics to focus on their kids because, for example, their 15-year-old daughter, Claudia Conway, is uh, sort of at that difficult age, it would appear, tweeting out uh, derogatory things about her mother, talking about uh, wanting to, well, announcing her decision to go to court to divorce herself from her parents, to emancipate herself. Very, very, very... uh, Kramer versus Kramer here, you know, and so they're trying to deal with their children, particularly in an environment where there's remote learning and other such things. But I don't know how much Claudia has to do with it. I I hate to get into somebody's family business like this as well. You just sort of kind of want to leave it there. And it's sort of the same I I feel about um, a Mary, uh, the cousin and Marianne, the sister, Marianne, the former federal judge who uh, I, I guess secretly recorded by Mary, the niece who wrote the book that excoriated Trump and had all sorts of derogatory things to say about Trump and so on and so forth, recording his sister for some 15 hours getting uh, candid commentary, but without the context of sort of the history between the two, the history among the siblings. It's not all rosy. You know, they litigated over their father's estate. So that's sort of an indication of not rosy. And that's what Mark Meadows was getting at when uh, Clinton Foundation donor zero Stephanopoulos on this week tried to make um, this a big issue. And Meadows just sort of gave him the back of the hand. Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Well, obviously, he's been public with his response. You know, just another day and another attack uh, that we continue to see, George. Uh, uh, I, I can tell you that uh, I've, I've never met the judge. Uh, I was at uh, the funeral the other day. I was hoping to meet her there. She didn't show up for her brother's funeral. Zing. Uh, and, and the president that I have the privilege of serving is not, is not the one that's being described on a 15-hour, I, I guess is what I'm, I'm reading, uh, secret tape. I mean, what? What family member tapes another family member for 15 hours secretly? It's all a bit unseemly, isn't it? And you never know what's going on within families and uh, the rivalries that date back, in this case, decades and decades and the uh, litigation, (laughs) just to put a punctuation mark on it. It it is just distasteful. I've been on the air for a while. I never got into the business of uh, the Obama children. I thought it was unseemly when we got into the business of Uh, The uh, George W. Bush's girls, you know, getting caught up partying too much and so on and so forth. I mean, going all the way back to Amy Carter or Ron Reagan Jr. You know, family dynamics are different and often difficult. And so I I think you just leave them there and you don't try to politicize this any more than is uh, inevitable. You know what I mean? Thanks for joining us on uh, this uh, kickoff, RNC kickoff edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again for some analysis of uh, day one tomorrow evening. This is the Dan Prof Show.